This episode of Embedded Insiders is brought to you by Infineon Technologies Sensor Solutions. To learn more, go to infineon.com forward slash applications and navigate to Sensor Solutions. On this episode, Brandon is joined by Matthias Beer. Chief Product Officer at CI4 Rail to discuss ModBlock 7, a PICMIC standard that helps regulate box PCs to the rising prevalence of modularization and miniaturization. Next, David Jones, Head of Marketing and Business Development for Intuitive Sensing Solutions at Infineon Technologies, provides insight into the company's smart sensors and reference designs. Then, I'm going to talk about how Johnson Controls and Accenture are partnering to reduce building emissions with a suite of software solutions that integrate AI, digital twins, and more. But first, Brandon and Rich talk connectivity that links you to your neighbors via Amazon Sidewalk. Amazon promises robust security to keep your home's data safe, but the insiders have mixed feelings. Hello and welcome to the Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass, who's the EVP and Brand Director of Embedded Computing Design. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing quite well, thank you very much. Excellent. Did that sound really formal? It did, um, <laughs> I'm, but I, I assume it's just because you're wearing your top hat today. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh, no, I'm doing great. I was... Um, where was I? I was at last week on the West Coast doing meeting with uh, some of the vendors who we work with on a regular basis doing face-to-face meetings. It was really nice to do face-to-face meetings for the first time in a long time. You know what they say about the West Coast? What's that? It's the best coast. Who says that? You From, from somebody who doesn't live on a coast, why would you say that? The West Coast sort of just gets, uh, you know, it absorbs, it absorbs the surrounding states. Yeah. Okay. That's, that sounds like a wannabe to me. Well, and who said it was like every great rap artist from. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But um, I wanted to know if you've heard at all of Amazon Sidewalk. I've heard a little bit about it. I'm far from an expert on it. I know that I was asked to opt into my on my devices like a while ago, and I think I did because I thought it would be like for the better good of the world. But I but I don't really know what I opted into to be honest with you. Well, that's what Amazon would have you believe. It was for the greater good. Uh, basically, what Amazon Sidewalk does is it um, extends your home network out. Um, And in some cases, this is to provide better connectivity to some of your other connected devices for your home, but it's actually extending it out so that other people can use it too. And of course, Amazon swears up and down that it's safe um, and secure. Uh, Of course, then they, as happened to you, auto-enrolled everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people. It wasn't auto-enroll. I had to say yes. Um, okay. Well, I never answered. I, I don't have any idea. I'm, I'm just assuming that I am now enrolled in Amazon Sidewalk, so I better go. No, I don't out. think that's true. And, and I think if you go into your settings, you can see if you're enrolled or not. 
I'll have to check that out and I will let everybody know on the next episode of Embedded Insiders whether or not I was automatically enrolled. The last time I checked to see what Amazon was doing with my Amazon devices, I went and looked at all the things my Amazon Echo had been recording when it thought that um, I had said Alexa and I promptly deleted all of those things. Not that any of them. You have to assume that, you know, say there's 20 million people who are eligible for this. There's a million of those people who are savvy enough to know what it means and whether they should opt in or out. And then there's another 19 million who just don't have a clue and, and they're just in, which, which I guess is, is what they were hoping would happen. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like, you know, it's kind of creepy. And it's not kind of creepy. It is, it is creepy. Let's just get this, like, you know, they've got this, like, well, we're in a shared connected community. And, you know, to me, that's code for, well, you know, the more Amazon can get embedded in the fabric of our society, the better it is for Amazon. But, you know, just frankly, do I necessarily want to have data on my network going through my neighbor's devices or being supplied so being transmitted from my neighbor's you know equipment i i don't i don't think i do well i guess in theory the result is a better connection for everybody in the neighborhood yeah my connection's fine actually it's not but that's a different story <laughs> you might be one of somebody who really benefits from this with your crappy connection hey you know what ever since i got back on cox i tried i tried to get away from cox and then I ended up back on Cox when I moved. I really wish I was back with my my CenturyLink optical gig optical fiber. But Just when you thought you got away, they I, pulled you back in. You know, I don't know if I've told you about this before, but the first <laughs> this is uh, this is a little bit of a tangent. But the last home I lived in was a new build. This was before CenturyLink had their fiber run. Well, I got to set up the internet and I call up Cox and I say, hello, Cox, like I need to pay you money for, for internet. And they say, great, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks to install internet at your address. I Wait, I'm going to pay for you to be able to deliver service to this address indefinitely? And the answer to that is yes, you are. Uh, that sort of brings up the subject of security, which is one of our favorite subjects here at the Insiders. Yes, and and also at the IoT Device Security Conference, which is coming up in November, right? Yes. Now you're going to ask me what the date is. Is it November 3rd? Uh, yes, that has been confirmed. Thursday, November 3rd, the IoT Device Security Conference, which is our longest running event here at Embedded Computing Design. Yep, it's a great one. Uh, check it out. What's the what's the uh, URL for that? IoTDeviceSecurityConference.com. Nice and short. Exactly. Exactly. So one of, the, one of the things that happened related to security is that the CSA, the Connectivity Standards Alliance, which I don't really like their name, but um, they just announced a working group for security um, to unify security globally. And this means that if you're a device maker, you make one product for anybody in the world. You don't have to have a product for each country. Because, mm -hmm. because the whole world, in theory, at least, will ad adopt the same standard. And the group doing this is um, saying that they'll have something out there within a year, a 
standard will be published with, within a year, which is probably pretty optimistic because there's a lot of people involved and being pulled in a lot of different directions, but that is the goal. And I, and it's, and it's awesome if, if they could do that. So the OEMs don't have to design 15 different products, one for each country and figure out who goes first and you know, what's more important. And then uh, this will probably work. Let's just use it for that country. What's the, What's being secured here? Is it the the data link? It's the, the transmission link. It's it's RF. It's not obviously the device, right? I mean, no, it is the device itself. It's putting the proper security features into the device. Got it. Like root of trust, secure boot, things like that. I'm assuming maybe some hardware acceleration for yes. yeah. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that they're going to be able to get some of this stuff into these Amazon Echo devices, especially if I'm going to be sharing all of my internet with every with all my neighbors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty fun. And at the same time, since we're talking about the CSA, uh, they are finally announcing the Matter standard. I have it on good authority that it'll be at uh, the beginning of November. They will be announcing that. Heard that before. Yeah. I, I think it's for real this time. Uh, it was supposed to be, I think, the end of last year in time for CES, and then it was supposed to be this spring, and that didn't happen. But uh, I'm pretty sure they got all their ducks in a row. Everybody blames things on COVID, that, and that's what that was the story that I heard that they couldn't do the proper testing because they couldn't get people to be in the same place at the same time to do all the testing that needed to be done. But apparently now they have all their ducks in a row. NXP certainly got all its testing done because I saw the, all of their matter compatible stuff at CES 2022. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brandon and Matthias Beer, Chief Product Officer at CI4 Rail, talk about Pigmix ModBlock 7 Box PC standard and how it fits into a modular future. How was Enatrans this week? Was there anything uh, new and exciting there? First of all, uh, I have to say it is very, very, um, or it's perfect that Enatrans happened again. That after four years, uh, really, you really can see that everybody's looking forward to meeting people. What we also thought is maybe that the that the visitor number would be lower than the years before. Uh, I don't have the impression. I think it was really a high visitor number. So it's also perfect for companies like us to, to meet as many people as possible. Major focus on the vehicle level is all these uh, hydrogen, all these hybrid stuff. Everything goes green, everything goes more energy efficient. This is a real trend you can see. And one of the trends on the vehicle side, the other trend is of course clearly digitalization. How are electronics and the transportation systems evolving? You know, everybody's heard, of, obviously, of the IoT and the industrial IoT and Industry 4.0. How does it, something like a train look today versus 5, 10, 20 years ago, or is it largely the same? So, trains look, from the outside, of course, a little bit more futuristic, but what you can really see in the inside, there is much more space for passengers. So, and this has total impact to the electronics. That means miniaturization is key. Everything needs to get smaller, smaller and smaller because there's so much less room for, for electronics, for cabinets and so on. So again, 20 years ago, maybe there's, there has only been 19 inch technology sold, uh, huge systems doing the job uh, in a very standardized format. Nowadays, 
It's really small boxes mounted somewhere. Where's the last last free space? Um, everything goes smaller, and I think this is exactly the right point for Mod Block Seven uh, for the standard because um, it it is chaos. Uh, every box looks different out there, and uh, train operators, manufacturers, they really build in what's what's needed. How much electronics are in a train today? You know, is, I mean, how much is that increasing to support requirements? I, I think it's increasing extraordinarily uh, by now and also by the future. Um, a few years ago, you, you, there was a saying, and there was also this kind of estimation that a, a new train today, maybe a high-speed train, uh, has around about 300 different computers, 300, 300, uh, different computers being responsible for different jobs within a train, from signaling, train control management systems, switches, down to whatever toilet control units, uh, seat reservation systems, things like that. So from a huge variety of vital and non-vital subsystems. Now by running into the digitalization, every train sorry, has thousands of sensors, which I would also call into electronics. Um, so it has massively increase. So sensor data has to be processed, the sensor data has to be collected, and therefore plenty of new applications force plenty of new electronics. So I would definitely say it is increasing. We have nowadays applications in the train where 10 years ago nobody had thought about. So it all comes more together. Electronics in a train is communicating with, with the private electronics like mobile phones, tablets, and so on. So it all flows together a little bit. And this is, of course, good news for companies like us, because electronics is always growing over average uh, to the railway market growth. So you mentioned ModBlock 7. What is ModBlock 7, and you know, what need is it serving for the industry? So the core idea for ModBlock 7 is to combine the advantages of modular systems, which we know very well from the past, like Compact PCI, Compact Zero, WPX, uh, which have great benefits uh, for the customer because he can tailor his system um, to, to only the components he need. Um, so we would like to combine these modularity advantages with the advantages of box business, of smaller products, uh, which are, of course, low cost, low weight, low space requirements, and highly integration. And this is first time in the market, really, the idea of standardizing this. Uh, every manufacturer did his own box business. Uh, he tried to standardize a little bit his own stuff that maybe another box looks similar to the first box, but over the market, there was no standardization. And this is Modblock 7. Well, it's, it's so incredible to me that there has never been a formal standardization effort around box PCs in the past, given that, you know, they're, they're relatively similar. I mean, they're in the, all, all the ones that you, that you see, if you, if you float a line card, you could classify them easily in the same category. Why don't you think there's been any standardization thus far? What happens in the past is standards on um, on modules. Yeah, when when it comes to modules like CPU modules, um, Com Express or Smart or things like that, this is, has been standardized, and every box PC manufacturer has used these standards. That's great, but I don't know why, but everyone <clears throat> built his own housing, his own format. Why? I think because of differentiation. Yeah, maybe one or the other. And, and I used to work also for an embedded computing company. Uh, you wanted your product to look different. Yeah, you wanted to have differentiation. You wanted your product to, 
to stand out for some reason. Yeah, where do the connectors come out? Where is the heatsink? Is it more flat? Is it a, a high design? I don't know. I don't know exactly why, but I think now at the time is right uh, to do this. A lot of these are going into heavy industry applications. So you're talking about low volume, high mix. And when you start talking about low volume, high mix from a manufacturing standpoint, that's kind of difficult, right? Has that been the case with Vox uh, PC technology? Yeah, of course. But the idea of Vox PC technology is that it's that it can be used for applications which you create higher quantities, higher volumes. Uh, so, uh, really low volume, high mix is is often, or let's say, it's easier to answer with modular systems like compact PCI. Yeah. Um, these box PCs address mostly applications with a higher quantity and with high in the, in the railway sector, we mean hundreds, uh, still not 10,000. And of course, every manufacturer tries to create kind of standard products, which can be re reused in several projects and only combine them in a way that for this low volume high mix or for this low volume project, uh, you have the right building blocks already together and stick them together for even a small batch. And this is, of course, what ModBlock 7 addresses perfectly. So we as a company, for example, we have created uh, several power supplies, CPU units, and several I.O. units. And we order high quantities from those from our sub-manufacturers. But I'm able now to configure a specific combination of this for also smaller projects at my customer site. But the customer still participates on my high volume order to my sub-suppliers. Uh, sub so modularity is the key um, to be cost efficient, but still have, um, but still be able to to answer to specific configurations in the short term. Well, that's the big question, then, Matthias, which is, how do you do that, right? Um, you, how is Mon Block Seven architected so that you can take advantage of some of those economies of scale, but still meet the application-specific requirements of not just obviously transportation systems, but box PCs that are going to be deployed and, like I mentioned before, any number of heavy industry applications, right? This this happens by the flexibility coming from modularity that that you define uh, building blocks. <clears throat> we call them units, um, which do a certain functionality, like power supplies. So we can create rail power supplies, we can create automotive power supplies or industrial power supplies, and by the standardized by the standardized interconnectivity between the units, you are allowed to 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 mix up various power supply units from various CPU units to various I/O units. Uh, so, and by the community of the Modblock Seven. Um, it is easy now to say, okay, guys, I would like to sell a box to a customer, but I need IO units from uh, from a partner company, and, and they all fit together because of the, the connectivity, which is standardized by connector by pinout. Um, so, and this allows being very flexible. What does that mean, though, in terms of number one form factor and number two thermals? The interconnect and the connectivity is, is standard, but do you have standard everything else? The inner areas of every housing is standardized. So that means every I.O. unit and every CPU unit, any of the contributors built fits together and fits in this housing. Um, depending on cooling, it, of course, depends on the CPU level. Uh, of, of the power consumption and so on, and can be can lead to a, a bigger housing in terms of bigger heat sinks and so on. Um, 
the main key of the ModBlock standard is that the units are interoperable between the manufacturers and fit all in every house. This is the main key. We did not per se standardize the outside dimensions of every box, but the inside dimensions. So if you needed to go do an extruded aluminum enclosure for some incredibly rugged deployment, you still have the flexibility to do that with ModBlock 7. That it could be done. You might lose the advantage of being able to be, be mounted into a 19-inch subrack. Yeah, but you, for example, you can you can become deeper. You can add further heat sinks on the back, if necessary, and still will be able to be mounted into 19-inch subrack. So yes, you have the flexibility also to create more robust devices. But of course, it is not intended to do systems for IP67 or something like that because. This would require also sealing on the front, and then you would lose a little bit the interoperability with other IO units. The simplicity of it really does give it a lot of flexibility and a lot of promise. I mean, obviously, you can ex expand out, but at its, at its core, it's, it's not incredibly complicated. So it's sort of like an everyman spec. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there are some specialities. Uh, like redundancy and so on, which which is great, which is necessary for highly available systems. So far, it is not addressed in the product plans we have right now. Uh, but this is something which, of course, can also bring another cool feature to the standard that it can also be used in high available safe systems in the future. Obviously, a standard has to be developed under some sort of organization. Who's involved and um, what can you tell us about PICMIG and why you chose to develop Modbox 7 there? So Figmag is, is hosting the standardization, and uh, we have all the participants, uh, Figmag members, and have, have been working with Figmag over years, uh, almost 20 years or so, and have good experience. Um, we have a lot of standards which have been done through this organization, like Compact PCI, Compact PCI Serial, and, and of course the players which are now participating in the new Modblock standard are also uh, old members of, of those standards. So I think it's it's a well-known standardization organization, and therefore uh, everybody has trust. Uh, everybody's sure that we can get it through, and that it also gets enough attention to spread it worldwide. When can we expect to see uh, Modblock 7 a specification ratified and then also product in the field? Modblock 7 standard is uh, it's planned to release to be released by end of the year, maybe early beginning next year. We're still in the process. Uh, I think all critical points have been addressed so far. Um, we have the regular two weeks meetings, uh, which progress well. Um, there's still, and, and even by this show here, there's still new interested people, new interested companies, which might want to join. Let's see how, how this works. But let's say end of the year is the milestone. And products are have been presented already on the InnoTrans, but of course, they cannot claim uh, ModBlock 7 compliance because the standards are not even ratified. But uh, early adopters like us, CR4Rail or other companies, uh, have shown the first products here. And what I learned from all of those companies, the feedback of from the market is great because it's it's compactness, it's um, it's high integration uh, form factor, um, and the modularity is really really appreciated by the market.
Next, David Jones, head of marketing and business development for Intuitive Sensing Solutions at Infineon Technologies, discusses the draw of smart sensors and Infineon's own solutions and offerings. I, I would classify a smart sensor as something that has um, intelligence built into it, something that's more intuitive than what's on the marketplace today. If you compare that to a dumb sensor, I can think of an example, which is the smoke detectors that you, you install um, as part of the building requirements. You would go down to like your local hardware store, buy something for $20, put it in the room, and you leave it there for 10 years. What's smart about that? Yes, it can detect um, smoke, but what happens when you're not in the building, the alarm goes off, what benefit does that have? Whereas a, a smart device, it not only can sense, in that particular case, not only sense the, the smoke in the room, but can give you a visual warning. Um, how would you communicate to the person? It might be connected through the Wi-Fi system within the home and then connected through your cellular network and you immediately get notifications even when you're not at home. So there's a certain amount of intelligence built into those products. There's a there's a cost component to this. So people will go to a, do a store and buy a sensor. They're expected to pay a certain amount of price or in their mindset, there's a certain price that they're willing to pay. And and that price, I think, has been ingrained into them because that's the functionality that they're used to getting. And I think that you have to have some differentiated product on the marketplace that really is compelling for somebody to buy something that's, quote, smart. Good example of that was a video doorbell. Why would you buy a video doorbell? All of a sudden, you know, if you go back 10 years ago, maybe less than that, even five or six years ago, it, it just seemed like a hugely novel approach. These were selling for um, $100, $150, whereas a normal doorbell maybe cost you 20, you know, a, a couple of dollars. Um, but it was so compelling to the user. He saw a huge advantage of it. So I think what's been stalling the market, I would say, would be the, the compelling use case or the, the need to buy these smart devices. And it has to be something compelling and attractive to the user. Finian are developing a number of uh, sensor technologies and we're helping to deploy these smart sensors and make it easy for customers to use these smart sensors by essentially not only just supplying the individual components, say for example, if it's a video doorbell, the camera sensor, or, or in some cases it's radar to detect the presence of somebody, but it's actually the, the whole package that goes with that. So it's the software, it's the communication protocols to the cloud. It's the connectivity piece. It's the compute piece. And we're actually building, we actually build out reference designs that do a lot of that capability and demonstrate the capabilities of our devices. And, and we bundle that together with some software examples. And so it's easy for the manufacturer to take that to the next level, which is, okay, I can take your reference design and I can build upon that reference design to differentiate my products. And, and I'm not really focusing on understanding your components. Um, I want to use the Infineon components, uh, but I don't want to understand how they work. I don't want to understand the guts of how they operate and spend my time spending time just understanding the technology. I'd rather use the technology. So what Infineon is doing is, is basically taking that to a level where a customer can use the technologies relatively quickly and get products to market relatively fast. Typically, our reference designs would go to a manufacturer um, or what we call an, an ODM or an OEM, and they'd basically take that design and customize that design for their particular application. What that means for the end user is that 
you've got pretty much a guarantee of the function working because um, because also the technology in this particular case is we we added the intelligence into the device itself. So what we'd call on the, on the device as an edge device as opposed to in the cloud. That means that for the for the person building that or the the manufacturer, he has the capabilities to customize that and make a, a differentiated product. Our reference designs aren't manufacturable reference designs, but the technology is working. So what that means for the manufacturer of the, the systems is he can add his spin to it. Um, he doesn't need to focus on getting the technology working. He can focus on things like the ergonomic design of the system, what it looks like. Um, a lot of these security companies that provide systems, security cameras and stuff like that, they really kind of differentiate on the look and feel of their products. And what that means is that they can get products to market a lot faster than they would if they were having to design our stuff, the Infineon technology from the ground up into their products. So at the end of the day, the consumer has much more choice, much more variation, um, differentiated products on the market, I would say. If you'd like to find out more information about Infineon solutions, it's actually quite easy. It's um, uh, www.infineon.com and you can just look at the top of the website and there's a section there that says applications and you just scroll down and depending on the application you're looking at, smart solutions, you just click on the link and it takes you to a web page and shows you all of our system solutions. Finally, Johnson Controls and Accenture have combined resources and technologies to create new innovation centers in India with the goal of reducing excessive CO2 emissions from buildings. The International Energy Agency estimates that 10% of global electricity consumption comes from building HVAC systems and fans. So what's the impact of those systems on climate change? If you look at the total uh, carbon footprint in the world, 40% of that is within the buildings. If you make an impact on that, you're making a big impact on sustainability. Says Vikrant Vinayak, Senior Managing Director at IT services firm Accenture. With initiatives like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, Setting aggressive goals to reduce global carbon emissions by 30% in the next eight years and offset them completely by 2050, it's clear that one of the biggest areas to address with sustainability efforts are in our own homes, offices, retail outlets, and other structures. That sounds like a simple enough task for building management systems, which have been helping facility operators optimize and manage structures in their utilities since at least the early 2000s. But a lot has changed since then. The rise of IoT means more in-building systems can now be connected to a BAS to monitor things like air quality in addition to resource consumption. And with more BAS now connected to the energy grid and the cloud, there's exponentially more data to be analyzed. When trying to compile all this data toward the goal of curbing climate change, especially within the timetables laid out by organizations like the UN, there's no simple fix. Rather than go at it alone, Accenture has partnered with building equipment leader Johnson Controls on OpenBlue, a suite of connected AI-enabled smart building solutions designed to improve facility efficiency. The way that OpenBlue works is that, you know, whatever the devices are that are inside 
the building. So whether they be a number of sensors or whether they're control systems that manage and measure different set points or chillers, these are always collecting different types of data. And, you know, we have uh, an open blue edge gateway that we deploy as part of our solutions uh, that ingest the data uh, from all of these different sources. Explains Vijay Sankran, CTO at Johnson Controls. So the whole idea is that you ingest all this information, you standardize it at the edge, you apply uh, AI and ML models um, as applicable on the edge, and then some models, um, they get uh, run up in the cloud based upon you know the types of data that need to be um, actually integrated. So we've developed a lot of different models like that. Um, and then we also offer bi-directional control from, uh, from our OpenBlue uh, software directly into the building domain where we can adjust um, set points for HVAC units and things like that, that uh, air handling units that exist uh, in the space itself. While most commercial buildings today are equipped with sensors and BAS control systems that allow facility operators to monitor and manage things like HVAC units and thermostats, many of them are set and forget implementations. In other words, some set points are determined when the BAS is installed, then left alone, provided everything continues to operate as intended. While that is automated, it's not necessarily smart. And, for example, if a system like an air conditioner is running on a mild day the same way it runs on a hot day, a lot of energy is wasted, resulting in far more carbon dioxide emissions than necessary. That's where OpenBlue's Edge AI comes into play. Typically, the way that a building has worked historically, you know, both with, with Johnson Controls and its competitors is, you know, somebody says, okay, I have this, all this equipment in the building. You go in, you set up the building, you know, with, with the equipment, you set up the control systems, you set the set points, and then nobody ever goes back and looks at it, and the building operates fine. Um, but there's no real-time adjustments of, you know, of the, um, of the building's uh, set points, um, you know, the, the speeds on the blowers, um, or any inputs around how many people are actually utilizing the spaces. We recently acquired back in December a company called Foghorn Systems that's an expert in edge AI where we're actually able to, to deploy models that are built in Python and R um, and other languages directly on the edge so that we can perform a lot of those calculations in, in real time versus ingesting all of the data up into the cloud. We use everything from more basic machine learning type techniques to leveraging multi-stage neural network techniques in some cases, especially for video type applications to text processing. And then we actually, you know, deploy that model into our OpenBlue um, AI as a service platform. And then we integrate that into our OpenBlue Enterprise Managers, which actually presents customers with choices around optimizations uh, based upon, you know, uh, how many people are in a space at a time and how we might improve ventilation in the space while ba balancing energy efficiencies. Currently, 
OpenBlue provides operator-assisted control that precludes users from having to sift through mountains of BAS data but still gives them the final responsibility of issuing commands to BAS-controlled equipment on the ground. They are also working towards fully automated versions of the platform for customers looking for a hands-off approach. This can all be done in a completely closed-loop nature. Johnson Controls and MIT successfully demonstrated an end-to-end OpenBlue workflow in a case study that theorized increasing the ventilation of an enclosed space could reduce the spread of COVID-19 pathogens while also improving energy efficiency. Collaboration involved creating a physics-based multi-solve machine learning model in Python using a variety of test data sets and then deploying it with the OpenBlue platform to optimize different building environments. there's a lot of different techniques that we use as part of our AI team, but uh, overall, it's it's the data and the connectivity that enables us to create, you know, a holistic set of offerings that, you know, ultimately add value using AI. While impressive, that's just one vector of AI and machine learning in the OpenBlue platform. All of the data collected by the OpenBlue platform is stored in digital twin format and overlaid into what's called a building information map, or BIM. The BIM is an accurate visual representation of a building complete with assets and alerting functionality that allows users to quickly locate, understand, and react to system failures when they occur. Zooming back out as these AI-enabled capabilities evolve, they also continue to converge into a comprehensive strategy to address climate change. By combining real-time AI models and the predictive potential of stimulating digital twins, building owners and operators will be able to adjust short-term equipment performance, ensure the efficient green operation of their machinery in the midterm, and over the long term, gain insights that help inform the construction of new facilities. We're constantly monitoring the space with real-time data, and we're taking in input like weather data, whether it's going to be warm or cold outside, and and ingesting all that data, we're actually able to forecast and say, okay, if I increase the set point to this because it's going to be really cold, I can save this much energy for the customer. Or if I'm seeing that a chiller is, is running really heavy and I have a fault on one of my air handling units, I can act, I need to go dispatch a technician to, to fix that air handling unit or adjust it, or even be able to do that, adjust that set point remotely so that, you know, my chiller isn't going to be operating as hard as it would otherwise. So it's really the data and the analysis that didn't exist before that allows you to take action in real time within the building to adjust and really save energy through that process. That is just so powerful when you think about all the different devices that exist in the building and the ability to do remote control, you know, via your building management systems that wasn't possible without, you know, a platform like OpenBlue. Accenture and Johnson Controls have OpenBlue innovation centers across the globe to help tailor the platform and its AI models to customers' energy and emissions reductions objectives. For more information, go to www.johnsoncontrols.com forward slash open blue forward slash open blue innovation centers. This episode of Embedded Insiders is brought to you by Infineon Technologies Sensor Solutions. To learn more, go to infineon.com forward slash applications and navigate to sensor solutions. 
For more daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.